0: So Jesus continues, and this is where we're going to spend most of our time, verses 11 through 32, with the lost son. Verse 11 says, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Okay, so the youngest son says, give me my share. Now the two things we need to know, a couple of them, number one is obviously this is the youngest son. So his share essentially isn't anything anyway. He is the lowest ranked in his entire family right? It goes in ranking, oldest, youngest, third, whatever, it Just and it gets worse the farther down you go. This is the youngest son going to his dad saying, I want my share. To ask for your inheritance while the father was still alive essentially is like wishing him dead, okay? And the third thing is in a culture like this where it's based on honor and shame, he's totally insulting his dad. So we're two verses into this story, and there's huge issues that the audience listening at the day would have been stunned by. They can't believe that the younger son is asking for his share of the estate, insulting his father, basically wishing him dead. And it's interesting because he doesn't even use the word inheritance. He says, give me my share of the estate. Because if he had said inheritance, that word would have demanded that he have some leadership responsibility over the estate. So what he wanted was everything that was due to him based on his father's death, which wasn't much, because he was the youngest son. So he's insulting his brother. He's insulting his dad. And then he's saying, I want none of the leadership responsibility with even our stuff. Just give me my money and let me go. Okay. Now, this is then. But just think for a moment, if you're like with your parents tonight or when you go out, just call them or maybe tomorrow and go, hey... You know, I was thinking, can I just get, like, my share of whatever you have, like, this week? I mean, that's an insane thought, right? Even for us today, that's like 100x in this culture what this younger son just did to his dad. They would have been stunned. So the expected response, then, for the father at this point, two verses in, would have been to refuse the boy. And basically drive him out of the house with verbal, if not physical, abuse. There's no provision in Jewish law anywhere for him to say, okay, let's find a way to do this. The surprising response we see then in verse 12 is, he divided his property between them. No argument, no yelling, no anything. The son comes with this crazy request. The dad says, okay, He's insulted, he's cut down, he's basically just been completely violated and humiliated by his son. And he says, okay, he divides his property between the older and the younger brother. So they both receive their inheritance. So the people listening are staggered already at the father. They're incensed by the son, amazed by the father's response. And it's interesting to note that the older son receives his share at this time too, right? It says he divided it between them. Okay? So there's two things. Number one, he, the older son basically received possession. So everything he has from this point on is his, but he doesn't receive the, the disposition of. He doesn't get to decide where everything goes yet. That still resides with the father. But everything he's doing from then on out is just building his estate. Verse 13, we continue on. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, Set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. Verse 15, so he went out and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to feed pigs in the fields. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Let's go back to verse 13 real quick. Got together all he had. The younger son got together all he had. Now, remember, his inheritance was primarily built around land, which was the most valuable asset you could have had in that day. Not unlike today in Orange County, right? Like, everybody wants some land. So he, he would have got land. He would have gotten, you know, cattle and goats and whatever else and all that kind of stuff and all of that. Got together all he had basically means he liquidated everything. Okay, so now all of a sudden, what was a personal Dispute what was a personal humiliation and shaming and insult of the father became public. Because if he's gonna liquidate everything in this village, the entire community would have known. I mean, he'd have to stick a for sale sign out in front of it and he'd have to find buyers and they'd have to go do paperwork or whatever they did in that day and find agents and stuff, I don't know. But either way, all of a sudden, everybody in this village knows. Everybody in the village. So all of a sudden he's bringing public shame and humiliation and disgrace upon his family because he's liquidating everything, gathered all he had. And for people ruled by honor and shame, this would have been enormous. There's a ceremony with this fancy word that I can't pronounce, so I won't. But basically, it means cutting off. And so, basically, when you go through this and you go squander everything, if you sell land to a Gentile, they literally cut you off from the entire community, And part of the ceremony is, as they are forcing you out of town, they literally just turn their back on you. They won't even look at you. They won't even set eyes on you anymore. They cut you off from the community. The only possible restoration, if this is what you do, is to repurchase the land and to own it. And that's the way you buy your way back into community. You buy your way back into relationship. And it's interesting to know, too, the older brother is silent this whole time, right? We don't hear anything about him. And he's the one at this point, as sort of the owner of this estate, he could have made it right, he could have made it okay for the younger brother, but he doesn't say anything. So his silence was deafening, so to speak. Moving on in verse 17, when he came to his senses, this younger brother, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. Now remember that life in the Middle East is governed by honor and shame, right? We've been talking about that. and So for him to return home at this point, it would have been subjecting himself to amazing shame and humiliation. You can only imagine... Right? He's been gone. He's blown everything he has. The last the people, the townspeople remember is that he insulted his dad, he insulted them, he left the community. If he returned, he was going to return to this cutting-off ceremony. The only way he was going to get back in the community. He'd been feeding pigs, which as a Jewish kid is the lowest of the low you can be. He's smelly, he's dirty, it's everything you can imagine that's horrible. And everything that's left now belongs to who? The older brother. So if he goes back, he'd have to eat at his table. He'd have to serve him. And you can only imagine how the hostility would increase and the damage. So he comes up with this plan, which we just read. See, he thought his problem was the, was the money. And so he's thinking, okay, I know what I can do. I'm going to come up with a way for me to buy back the land and do everything I sold and avoid the cutting off ceremony. And he starts thinking through, what does this look like? I can buy my way back into restoration with my dad and with my family and with the community. He assumed if he paid back this money, that would happen. But he had no skill, right? This is a rich kid. He grew up with slaves and with servants. I mean, his dad had an estate in the Middle East at that time. So he's thinking, what do I need to do? I need to be like one of those hired craftsmen. That's all he could remember. The people that came and worked, he's like, they got paid good money, and they always had food to spare. If I become like that, I can earn some money, and then I can buy this thing back, and I won't have to go through the cutting-off ceremony. It's going to work. I know it. It's his plan. But even to be an accepted apprentice as a skilled craftsman, he would have to get his dad To vouch for him and that's why he says dad make me like one of your hired servants he'd have to go back and beg and plead to get his dad's trust just one more time to invest in him to become all of this to convince him he can do it so he can pay back and be in relationship it's interesting verse 19 says I'm no longer worthy to be called your son but he's hoping that someday he will be right because he anticipates being paid for his services and working his way back in. He's trying to earn his way back. He's trying to make a deal. There's no evidence. This is one of those thoughts this week that struck me. There's zero evidence of genuine, authentic confession or repentance. None. Their younger son is returning to make a deal. He's returning to buy and earn his way back into relationship with the father, with the brother, and with community. There is no evidence of repentance in this. His only motive is that he's hungry. He's feeding pigs. He's hungry. Reconciliation is not a part of his immediate plan. Food is his immediate plan. Verse 18, even his confession that he's planning is so lame. It says, I have sinned before heaven and in your sight. The language that's used there is the exact same language that Pharaoh used with Moses when Moses was trying to pull the Jewish people, the Israelites, out of Egypt, which was this false confession. The Pharisees and the scribes and the audience that would have known and been listening to Jesus in that day would have recognized that. It was a false confession. The prodigal didn't understand the nature of what he had done. He thought it was about money, but it was about the broken relationship that existed between him and his father. And Jesus is asking a significant question to the people at this point. He's sort of just holding a mirror up and saying Is the primary relationship between a believer and God that of a servant and a master? Of a skilled craftsman or a laborer and a master? Or is it of a child in fellowship with a father? He's putting that before them and saying, what is the primary relationship of a believer and God? What does it look like? Because if it's about a skilled craftsman and if it's about being a master and a servant, then it's a really good plan he's got. And the audience, particularly the Pharisees at this point, they would have been buying completely into the story that Jesus is telling them. They would have been leaning in, they got it. They're like, oh my gosh, broken relationship, shame, dishonor, he's violated so many things, offended his family, and now their views about salvation and how that mirrors the way they look and relate to God would have started coming into play too. Because they're saying if the son repents, if he confesses, if he comes back, if he works his way back, if he does all these things, Well, then after careful negotiation and appropriate consideration and compensation over time, he will be accepted again by his dad and his community and his son. And yes, that makes sense to them. So up until this point, they're still completely ticked at the son and incredibly surprised by the father's response. And so their expectation is, okay, so send the son back. He's going back to his dad. Here's what's going to happen. The boy returns. He's badly treated by the town. He has to go through the feared cutting-off ceremony. After actually working his way through the village, he would get to his father's house where he would have to do his speech of confession and negotiation. And after a scorning father listened intently and considerable negotiations, maybe he would convince him to allow him to be an apprentice, to be a skilled craftsman. And at that point, he'd send him out to live where the skilled craftsmen lived because he would not live on the estate while he was learning that trade. And so after years of living out there and working on the estate and saving his money and stuff, finally, maybe, he would buy back the land and be restored into community with his father and the sons. This would achieve the reconciliation that they were looking for. This is what the audience expected the resolution to be. Now, before we move on, Do we have these same expectations today? Do we live with this expectation as a younger son? That as we come back into relationship, there's a deal that needs to be made. That somehow we can earn or work or pay for or negotiate our way back into relationship with our father. Or do we have the expectation as the Pharisees, as the religious folks, that, okay, yeah, after someone confesses appropriately and works their way back and shows appropriate remorse and reconciliation and earns and works hard enough, then yes, we will invite them into community with us. We wouldn't do that, would we? A surprising response of a father in the second half of verse 20. But while he, the younger son, was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, he threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. You can imagine the expected response as opposed to what Jesus says the Father actually did and what that would have meant and represented to everybody listening. The Father runs. He embraces him. He kisses him. He embraces him and enfolds him before the great speech, before he says, I acted inappropriately. I can't believe I've done this to you. Before the big confession, he is already engaged relationship with him. He is not stimulated to offer grace or forgiveness or mercy based on a clever speech by his son. He has already done it and lived it out. A long way off, it doesn't mean that he just happened to look up and there he was. Remember, this is a village. Okay, and there's an estate and and there's like one road probably. And so it may get good for the town, but way off, it's dusty and bumpy and crazy. And so... He sees him a long way off, which means he must have been looking for him. And he must have been looking for him for a couple reasons. One of them is he knew. He knew that in the younger son's own self reliance and arrogance, he was going to blow everything and return. He also knew that he had to reach his son before he got to the village. The dad had to reach the son before he got into town on that road. And so he was watching and waiting and looking because, yes, he knew that the son in his own dependence would fail, but he also knew he had to get to him before the village did. He had to get there. It says he responds with compassion. Once again, this is not a part of not even the language, let alone the behavior of a Middle Eastern father at this time. You know, he would have been expected to uphold the family name, exhibit anger and indignation at his return even. He has the full right and expectation to give nothing and even just to send his son away, especially returning with nothing, smelling like pigs, being dirty and unclean. The father runs. Don't minimize that. Okay, the word, the word used here is, is the word used for a foot race. So it's not like the speed walkers in the Olympics or like joggers or anything. It says he ran, he sprinted. And this is a big deal because slaves ran, servants ran. Sometimes moms might have run to kids if they were hurt or something in that day. Men did not run. And part of the reason why is you have these long robes. And in order to run, you would have to pick your robe up. Okay? Just to show your legs in that culture was incredibly humiliating and offensive to everybody. The father ran to meet him. And then the kissing, it wasn't just like he gave him a kiss. The word there is he smothered him with affection. So here you have a dad just waiting and looking. And he sees him, and he knows he has to get to him. So he runs, and he humiliates himself in front of his entire family and village and estate. And he gets to him, and you got can only imagine what the kid smelled like and what he looked like. And it didn't matter. Because he smothered him with affection and attention and kisses. Verse 21, the son says to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. So they began to celebrate. The son gets two sentences out, but he can't even finish his speech. And it's not because the dad interrupts, but it's because he can no longer presume to offer any solution He just watched his dad run and smother him and humiliate himself publicly for his sake. And he's completely overwhelmed at the outpouring of mercy of this dad. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, probably originally meant I've lost the money. I'm hoping to impress you enough with a great speech and enough hard work that over time, you'll give me a gift of trust and I can earn my way back into being your son. But now, probably simply meant, I am just unworthy of this stunning, humiliating, costly, public display of grace. As the son throws away his last card, he's sort of abandoning any attempt on his own to solve the problem. He offers no suggestion, and the problem isn't the money lost anymore. It's about the relationship, being reconciled. The failure of the law and of money and of earning and of working and of trying to redeem opens up our hearts to God. The law was an attractive solution to this son as long as he thought it would be a way back into relationship. But as soon as he was confronted with this amazing act of love and grace, it just stopped everything. And it doesn't stop. He says, bring the best robe, put it on his finger, get him a ring, get him sandals. He dresses the boy. He doesn't even tell him, hey, go get cleaned up, like, you're cool, but you smell, so go take a shower, get some clothes on, let's party. He says, bring him the best robe. That's a way of showing incredible honor. Put a ring on his finger. That's the family ring. It's the way you sign documents in that day. It's a way of of saying, I trust him put sandals on his feet. Only free people wore sandals in that day. It's self-respect. He's showing him honor and trust and self-respect. Bring the fattened calf and let's kill it. Here's the deal. Fattened calves feed like 200 people. This was not a family estate celebration. What he was doing is saying, we are going to take this public. We are going to celebrate as a village. We're going to get everybody together. It's not just about us coming together, but he is saying, I'm going to formally reconcile you to our entire community. Because if I, as the primary offended person, can forgive, certainly everybody else would, who's going to question that? Who's going to go to the dad and say, hey, shouldn't, you know, shouldn't we have that cutting off ceremony? People would have said, are you kidding? There's no way. And I mean, remember those earlier parables about searching and finding and partying? Who was the party for? Was it for the lost sheep? Was it for the lost coin? Or was it for the shepherd? Or was it for the woman? This party is for the dad. It is not for the son. The party is for the father. Those things, they say rejoice with me. Because I've found. So, everybody, let's get them together and celebrate. But we're not done. So, we see this amazing story of radical grace and reconciliation taking place with the younger son. What about the older son? Where's he at? Verse 25: Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and said, what's going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. The phrase safe and sound there, you need to understand, it's not about health and welfare. It's not like he's not scratched and he didn't break anything, so it's cool. Basically, it's the idea of reconciliation. The word there is about shalom. It's about peace. Peace. He's saying, your your brother is back, and there's peace and reconciliation, and so we have to celebrate. And the older brother knows that this will seal the reconciliation between the prodigal and his dad and the community, but he wants the younger brother punished, so he gets angry. He refuses to go in. And you need to understand, to refuse to go in, it's his estate. And refusing to go in, he's not a long way off. He's standing right outside in the courtyard. It'd be like the entryway of your house, like in your front yard or your patio or whatever. He gets there, he hears music and dancing, and he says, what's going on? And he gets told, and then he says, I'm not going in there. Everybody can see this. Everybody's watching. And you can imagine what happens because that is such a slap in the face to the dad. The son's refusal to go in is absolutely stunning to the community. The expected response would have been for him to walk in and shake hands and greet and say, this is awesome. My brother's back here. This is my stuff. Eat up. Let's party. Rabbis of that day said it's better for a man that he should cast himself into a fiery furnace than he should put his fellow to shame in public. The older son was not shaming his younger brother. The older son was shaming his father. And all of a sudden, he is in the same position the prodigal was in when he left. And this insult cuts way more deeply because it's instantly public in front of everybody. The expected response, right, as your son's not coming in, that the dad instantly would have called slaves and said, go grab him, put him in the garage. The dungeon or somewhere. We'll deal with him later. Would have just cut him off. The surprising response, we see the father, what happens? Verse 28. So the father goes out and pleads with the son. And the son answers his father. Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf. The father in this incredibly painful, self emptying, humiliating kinds of love. You can imagine 200 people, music, dancing. That's what it says. All of it stops. And everybody's watching the older son outside and the dad inside. And what's he going to do? And the dad gets up. And once again, he goes to his older son. And he doesn't condemn, he doesn't judge. He came out searching. The son doesn't address the father with the word father. He doesn't address his brother with the word brother. It's your son. In verse 29, so telling, he says, I never disobeyed your orders. You see, that was the hope in the life of the religious people of the day, remember? Obedience. And here we see the actions and the views of them being expressed in this older brother. And the older son is claiming and hanging his hat and his hope on the fact that he never disobeyed his dad. But he says this in the midst of the most publicly shaming and humiliating action towards his father that anybody could possibly imagine. He hadn't broken the law, but he had devastated their relationship far worse than the younger son ever had. The surprising response of the father in verse 31, he says, My son, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. He calls him my beloved son. He always knew that his son would be concerned with his rights and his privileges. He even consents and gives that to him in that moment. His demonstrated love in in getting up in the silence and walking out to his son, it's even more costly than the welcome he had given the prodigal younger son earlier that same day or week. And then the parable just stops. It doesn't end. It doesn't resolve. It just stops. And you can imagine everybody's silent and sort of waiting. And what's going to happen? Did dad do anything else? More importantly, what's the older son's response to that act of humiliating, radical grace? And Jesus has sort of creatively put himself in the audience all of a sudden in the story. And they must finish the play and answer the question, what are they going to do? What would they do with a dad like that? What would they do with Jesus? What are they going to do with a father who's willingly, consistently, repeatedly, relentlessly... Willing to respond with radical grace. It just stops. And in some ways, um, it doesn't end because it continues on into our life. We all find ourselves in this story. In the lostness of the younger son. Feeling like we're so far from who we were created to be and who God designed us to be, that somehow maybe we can work our way back through a deal or a negotiation or behavior. We find ourselves like the older sons. I know that's where I usually find myself. I find myself in the judgment. I find myself in wanting somebody to prove something before I can extend love and grace and reconciliation to them. And in small, subtle ways even, wanting to control, I think that's who we find ourselves a lot as the church. And so we get this beautiful invitation to come home. This beautiful invitation to come to the party regardless of where we're at. If you would just close your eyes bow your heads for a second. We're going to finish just by taking communion together as we sing the last couple songs as a community. And as we do, this is a party that Jesus threw. This is an invitation he gave. This is a banquet he created for us in community with his disciples to remember. To remember that there was a God that while we were yet sinners, while we were far and removed and distant, He sent his son, Jesus, into the world to die for us. So younger sons, tonight, come home. Just acknowledge it's not in your own strength. It's not in your own power. It's not in your own wisdom. It's not in your own deal. It's just in a gift of a loving Heavenly Father that pursues and looks for you just to walk over that hill. Older sons, come home. Stop trying to earn with your own efforts and work and obedience and judgment and even arrogance or self-reliance and just let go and join the party for our own lives and for the lives of those around us. Jesus, tonight, as we remember you, as we take communion, God, I pray that you would help us remember that these, um, this is real, and you were real, and the bread represents that, it represents your body that was given for every single one of us. And God, that uh, that you died and gave your life as a punishment for our sin. And we don't need to try and earn or work our way. We don't have to cut deals. We simply need to trust and believe. And I pray as as we take the bread and the juice tonight that we would remember you and that we would remember that invitation to come home. There's stations down front and in the back